Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have John Dahl, the co-founder and CEO of Mux, a company that helps developers build online video. They've raised around $175 million in venture capital to date, grown incredibly fast the last year and a half or so with COVID. And in this episode, we go through how this all got started with John's other company, Zencoder, ended up selling for millions of dollars. Then he decided to start Mux, raise a bunch of venture capital, and has really grown tremendously in the last five or six years. We go through hiring a team, how he ended up getting his first few customers, how he looks at really developing himself as a founder, and much, much more. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is John Dahl, co-founder and CEO of Mux. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And with Mux, I mean, there is a, a lot to discuss here, quite the journey you've had in the video world. For people who don't know Mux just yet, what are you guys doing today with the company? Yeah, Mux is a video platform for developers. So we help software companies build on top of video. So that might be companies that are like really video centric, like video events platforms or video based fitness or things like that. And it's companies where video is just like a new feature to bring in, like a social media app that that brings in video. With that, I wanted to discuss a little bit more in the early days and how this has kind of evolved. Because I know you started with kind of the data layer first, then you added in on the streaming side of things. But yeah. going back, obviously, you had another company before this with Zencoder that ended up getting acquired. Where does this kind of interest in video come from, John? Yeah, it actually goes back it goes back a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm old, apparently. Uh, <laughs> but back in 2007, I was a software developer, and I got hired to basically build a video transcoding backend for a little startup. The startup wanted to startup wanted to do a video streaming site like YouTube. This is like 2007 was like really early YouTube <laughs> if you remember that. Um, yeah, and um, you know the 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 startup didn't go anywhere. But I kind of saw firsthand how hard it was to build on top of video. Like it it was a it was it was really hard. I, I had to learn a lot. Uh, first thing I looked for was like an API that I could use or a web service or you know, a company whose product I could buy and there was nothing. So that's kind of the, that's kind of what got me into video. Um, I spent a couple of years bootstrapping around that. Um, I was running a little like software dev shop uh, and I just kind of put my extra time into bootstrapping around video. Um, And then in 2010, we applied to and got into Y Combinator um, with a startup called Zencoder. And Zencoder was, it was basically the API that I wanted in 2007. It was an API (laughs) to video transcoding. So we took this really hard technical problem that every, every video that goes on the internet has to go through. And we made it a really simple like cloud API. At that time with it, what kind of in 2010, the first time you went through it with that, you said you're bootstrapping before. This is a different, obviously that was, Zencoder was a much different situation with that, yep. raising a little bit of capital at least. Yep. How did the team come together for that? Obviously we'll get into Mux in a bit, but I'm just curious how the team came together for that company. Yep. Yeah. So... Um, the the first nine employees were basically the people that I was working with. Uh, it was actually it was actually a, a partner and I. We we were running different dev shops, um, 
Uh, and we kind of got together we, and we put our extra time into this bootstrapping. And when we got into Y Combinator, we were able to raise a little bit of money. And we kind of rolled everyone from doing the hourly consulting services work into the startup full time. So, you know, maybe that started in like March of 2010 and by June of 2010, July 2010, we'd raise money and we, we just shut off all of our consulting at that point. Um, and that, that was our first team. So from that experience then, so that was, that was 2010, this company, a little bit of funding, yep. ended up selling it a couple years later. Yep. How did that come about? I was just curious as how you got that. Obviously, a, a relatively short period of time. How did that happen? Yeah, it was really looking. It, it doesn't feel that way. It, it felt like <laughs> years, but looking back, it was, it was really fast. Um, it was um, so acquis- I don't think acquisitions are something you can manufacture, at least not until you're a certain size. If, if you're a giant company, you can hire an investment banker and try to sell. Um, but when you're when you're small, like we were 16 people, we were a few million dollars of revenue. Um, acquisitions really only come by people people coming to you. So. Um, we we had what, what what happened is we we had one we had one conversation with a big tech company um, that didn't go anywhere they they were super cheap and like couldn't get to a reasonable price and we're like no we're happy we're running a good business we're growing really quickly um, but then another company came around which was uh, Brightcove who's a bigger company in the video space um, and um, you know. A lot of stuff just made sense then. Uh, a lot of stuff lined up. They they wanted to keep our product running, which is really important to us. They wanted our whole team. They, they basically wanted to run the Zencoder business as part of something bigger. And um, there were a couple of reasons why. Like we we debated like do we want to sell or or keep going. Um, and uh, it was a hard call. Um, but there were a couple of reasons why it was a good time for us to sell. And so that's what we did. I'm just curious, what were some of those factors? Because I've talked to other people who have sold businesses before and people who have thought about it and haven't sold. Like for you, at least like at that time, what were some of the factors that made you choose that direction? Yeah. So one, it was, I'd I'd never had an opportunity like that before. You know, I I, I was, I wasn't paying myself a lot of money. I had never paid myself a lot of money. I'd I'd, I'd never worked at Google or Facebook or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, I think um, it, it was meaningful financially. Um, another factor was we were really at an inflection point where we'd raise seed funding, but we'd never raised like a proper venture round. And if we wanted to keep going, that would have been the next step. And so we kind of looked at it as like, we can jump off the track right now, um, or we can commit to another five to 10 years um, of this exact same company. Um, honestly, both would have been good. And honestly, like maybe sticking with Zencoder probably would have probably would have paid off nicely uh, over the long run, but um, it was also a reasonable time to try something, to try something else. Um, I, I thought I, I knew I, I didn't know, but I, I thought I knew I could do it again. Um, and so <laughs> it was like, this was great. Let's lock it in and let's try something else. Yeah. I think that's actually a really important point you bring up because for founders, you're always obviously pressured by your investors or your venture capitalists like that are wanting big exits. I mean, I'm in a venture capital firm with Vitalize and we obviously want massive exits and that's yep. how the fund dynamics work. But when you really actually look at the, 
the numbers for founders, especially like you said, if you haven't worked at like Google or anything as well, like you're yeah. on, you're pretty much working very cheap for years and to have a multi-million dollar exit, you know, that's, that's a game changer for yeah. everyone. Uh, it is pretty interesting to see how people decide to take that versus not taking it. And one of the people I had in the show, Rand Fishkin from Moz, at one point he had a, a small, smaller, similar actually to yours in terms of small by VC standards, I'm going to say he had a 25, $20 or $25 million offer, I think, where he would have made a, a large chunk on the exit and he did not sell. Yeah. And then things ended up happening. Uh, the evaluation would have had to be you know, hundreds of millions for him to get the same amount later on, didn't end up happening. And it's just like, you never know what route's going to be best. So it is kind of fascinating to see what people decide to do and why. Um, yeah. And what pressures are kind of influencing them with that? And you mentioned earlier that you you thought you might be able to do this again in video. So going from that experience, selling the company, you obviously stayed on with the company as well. But then, how did you decide to start Mux? Yeah, I so I spent a few years at Breakove, and it was a good place. It was good people. I learned a lot there. Um, I was a I guess one other factor here, like back at Zencoder, I was I was an engineer who had become a founder. I didn't know how to run a company, I didn't know how to manage people. Like I, I, I think I knew how to like design good products and talk to customers. Um, so I went to Brightcove and I learned a lot about the business side of the house. I worked, I learned a lot about how to grow a sales team for a business like like this um, and, and other things too. But but after a few years, it was time to go. Like I was, I was um, I'm much better as a founder than as an employee uh, in all honesty. So um, <laughs> So, so yeah, so then I, I took some time off. I actually took about six months off and just thought about a bunch of ideas. I didn't know if I wanted to do something in video again or do something totally different, but the thought just kept kind of nagging at the back of my mind that the same problem that I saw in 2007 was still there. It was still really, really hard to work with video. So Zencoder solved a small part of that um, and made, made something easier. Um, but even if you use Zencoder, you still have to you really need actual video expertise if you're going to do anything interesting with video. So tens of thousands of software companies out there basically have to hire video engineers or train video engineers if they want to work with video. Um, and in the meantime, like video has gotten more complex. Like video is a lot simpler in 2007 than it is today. In 2007, you took like one MP4 file and you put it in a flash player and that was it. Remember yeah. flash video. Um, and now it's just so much more complex. You have adaptive adaptive uh, streaming where you have multiple renditions, you segment them up into little segments, you deliver over multiple CDNs, you go to web, but also Android and iOS, maybe you go to Roku or TVs. Um, it's just a lot harder. So long story short, I, I kind of I knew that like the, the same problem was still there and uh, we started Mux to solve that problem. At that time then, so with founders, obviously seeing problems and solving problems is the core of any, any business for any startup. But what was the landscape like at the time in terms of just like competitors or were the things out there that were trying to solve this yeah. in a way like that made you compelled to say, hey, we're going to tackle this because there's still space for us? Yep. Yeah. So the video, the market for video infrastructure was really fragmented. There were hundreds of companies doing a small part of the problem. Um, and we thought it was all focused in the wrong place. So almost everyone who's building something for like video transcoding or video streaming was really focused on the media space. So they're focused on selling to HBO and Disney and those kind of companies, um, which is great. Like that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's competitive. And um, meanwhile, no one was building video for developers. Um, probably the most interesting thing we did at Zencoder was 
build a developer-first API where we, we followed companies like Twilio and Heroku back then um, uh, and just made a great product uh, with great documentation, good support, transparent pricing, all those things that developers look for. Um, and like literally no one else tried that for video. It was like Zencoder and then no one else. And so when Mux came around, um, it was kind of a wide open landscape for building the platform for the software engineers who actually want to bring video into what they're building. Having a pretty clear understanding of that from your previous experience and understanding the problem then, what did that look like in terms of building that out, getting uh, you know customer interviews or understanding what they wanted or what they needed? How did that go in the early days? I think it's always important to hear. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in the um, kind of the Steve Blank school of thought, the, the lean startup customer disco- customer development process, um, where probably the most important thing you do before you get to product market fit is just talk to a lot of customers to, you, you, you tell them your vision and you listen. Um, you don't ask them what they want. You tell them what you're doing, but then you listen and you, you really listen for passion. You don't listen for like polite, oh yeah, that sounds interesting because every, <laughs> everyone will be polite. What you really want is people who are like, oh man, I need that. I, it keeps me up at night that I don't have it. I, um, I tried to build my own bad workaround and it's causing me all this pain. Um, so we, at the, in the first six months of Mux, we probably got on, I probably got on the phone with 50 plus um, customers. Um, so probably half of them were people I'd worked with in the past because I've worked in this video industry for so long. Um, there's a lot of people who loved Zencoder and they were like, oh, what are you doing next? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then half were, were new, um, which was important to you because you don't want to, you don't want to only listen to the voices that you already know. From that experience, so that obviously got you to the point of understanding what you were going to build version one. And I mentioned earlier the idea that you started this kind of data analytics layer first, and then the streaming came after that. Was that always part of the plan? Was that through these customer interviews? Like, how'd that come about? Yeah, that was always part of the plan. Um, you know, it, it, it might have been an overcomplicated plan. Maybe we could have done it more simply. But we really, from the beginning, we said, we're going to build a suite. We're going to build multiple products because there's more than one hard problem that developers have to solve if they want to stream video. Um, so we debated, what do we do first? Like, do we do the analytics first? Do we do the video streaming first? Do we do something else first? And we decided to, to lead with data. Um, and th- there were a couple of reasons for that. One, one reason was we wanted, to ha- we wanted to build future products on the foundation of a lot of data. Um, we knew from... We knew from our friends at places like Netflix and YouTube how much investment they have made in really rich, robust analytics and A-B testing and monitoring. And from that, they've been able to build really mature video platforms. And so we wanted to do that. Um, and, and another kind of a weird reason why we built analytics first also is we didn't know it. Um, and you learn so quickly at the beginning of a startup. Um, we kind of figured if we build the, if we built the transcoding or streaming first, and then tried to build analytics, we'd never be analytics experts. We'd always be the, the transcoding experts and the streaming experts, and anal- analytics would always be like a, a bolt-on. Um, but because it was the first product we did, we really immersed ourselves in it. We, we really got good at that. Um, and we knew we could always come next to the streaming part, which we were familiar with already. And from that, and those customer interviews, building this first part of it, those early customers, who did they end up being? Uh, were you leveraging your networks, or were there you know certain targets you were going after that you knew right away? Like, we need yeah. these people on the platform first, and then we'll get to the next people. Like, how did you approach 
that in the early days. And we'll come back to now in a, in a bit, but I'm curious about the early days at least. Yeah, yeah. So our first, um, our first customers, probably half of them were people who we knew already who had used Zencoder. So we just went to our friends. We went, we went to people who uh, yeah. liked our other product and said, hey, um, we're building something new. Do you want to check it out? Um, and not everyone did. You know, a lot of people maybe took a call but didn't have a need or didn't want to. But that, that's where we got half of our first, pro- probably 20 of our first 40 customers were that way. Um, the other half, um, we built on reputation. So it's not people we know, but um, we told our story. We told the story of Zencoder and then starting Mux. Um, and we told stories about um, why data is so important for anyone who's streaming video. Um, and we started to grow our reputation that way. From that experience, so growing it in that regard, and I'm seeing those first customers, I think a lot of people obviously going to rely on their friends or contacts, like, why wouldn't you? How do you go from that then in terms of the growth side and customer side to these massive names you have now? I mean, there's so many well-known names. If you look at your customer list on, on mux.com and like, there's so many people like, how did you get to that point? And like, again, back to the point of kind of targeting or knowing which ones you wanted. Uh, I'm curious as to how that kind of progressed over time the last, you know, five or six years. Then. Yeah. So for the first two years, um, a lot of our growth was um, thought leadership in the video industry. So our first our first target customer was an engineer who's already working in video. Um, and yeah. so we went to the conferences they go to. We exhibited at the conferences. We, um, we yeah, we, we just hustled to book meetings with, with people. We, we uh, leveraged um, introductions from existing customers to new customers. Um, we hired our first salesperson about a year in. Um, so before that, it was all me, and I'm I'm not a great salesperson, so that, that, that was uh, I, I can tell a story, and I you know that, that that's kind of what I saw. Um, so it was great to hire our first salesperson, and then our second one was later that year. Um, but you know, for the first product, it was a little bit, a little, it was a lot of um, community and thought leadership, and a little bit of uh, top-down sales. Um, with our second product, and this is always sort of the vision and kind of our sweet spot. The second product we really built bottoms up. So Mux Video is much more driven by um, self sign up little startups that want to try play with video, um, trying us out. So the, the the motion there is create a great product, um, support it well, make it easy to adopt, um, and over time people tell their friends. So um, you know like. You can't just use reputation as like a total as a go to market most thing, but it's really really powerful. And there's things you can do to like over a long period of time grow a really strong reputation. Um, so most of our business today is inbound. Um, we've grown the sales team from where it was, um, and we do we have enterprise customers, and you need sales for enterprise customers. You, you can't you can't just do self sign up for a hundred thousand dollar customer, a million dollar customer. Um, but we see a lot of growth. We see a lot of little companies that turn into big companies over time. Is that today with, I mean, obviously with COVID and other things, there's no like how it's evolved now with those different events you go went to before. What happened in the last year? I know that growth was absolutely insane. And doing research, you know, just seeing like 300% uh, in terms of the platform growth and like 3,700% uh, just on revenue. Like there's so many things that evolved in the last year, year and a half. How did that, that go, John? Yeah, um, it was um, 
so we were growing nicely the year before um, the pandemic hit, but when the pandemic hit, the, the first thing we thought was, oh no, what's going to happen? Like, are we going to lose all our, like lose our customers? I think no one knew. So we, for about, for yeah. about a month, we were worried like everyone else. Um, but it turns out that when, when people can't leave their home, people watch a lot more video. Uh, Facts. Uh, and what, what that, what that, what that did was um, it caused thousands of entrepreneurs to think, what could I do with video? Um, and so we just saw a lot of like really amazing innovation over the last year, um, like new categories just kind of emerging, like the, the live event category, like there, there were ways to live stream an event in the past, but like there's this whole new like industry around live streamed events um, that we were privileged to power a lot of. Um, there's lots of lots of people pushing um, for more video-based education, bringing video into more. Um, I think like the creator economy is a inter- really interesting trend right now, and video yeah. is a big part of that. Um, video is a great way to communicate with an audience, um, and I think the pandemic probably helped the creator economy just because people were thinking of uh, what can I do other than just go into an office. Yeah, people got much more creative on on ways to make a living, ways to uh, get some side hustle money, whatever it ends up being with the last year and a half and kind of rethinking things in general and th- rethinking their jobs and their careers, which then obviously with the video side, there's a lot of opportunity within that. And yep. with that growth, one of the things that I, my mind goes right away is like the team. Okay, so how did the team grow? How was that team growth over that period of time? As yep. you're, you're seeing this ramp up of, of so many people you know, adopting video, how did that go? How did you approach that when you had to scale up? Yeah, so we, I'd say we, we grew slow and steady up to about 35 people. And that's about where we were when um, the pandemic hit. Um, and um, we built the team by investing a lot in our hiring process. I think, you know, this, this is such a cliche, but like hiring good people is like almost the most important thing you do. Um, so we put a lot into that from the beginning and we've, been able to hire a great team. Um, then with when the pandemic hit, we were planning on going from you know that 35 to well no we, we actually we actually did about the plan. We went from about 35 to about 65 last year, um, which was really interesting. Like we hired 30 people that we didn't get a chance to meet in person. I've never done that. I've, I've hired a lot of people remotely and almost every time like you visit them or they visit you. But we couldn't do yeah. that last year. So we hired 30 people. And then this year, we're going to hire over 100. Um, and we're well all the way to that. Um, so it's been it's been wild. Like, I've never I've never aspired to run, like, a hyper, hyper-growth company. But we're going to triple the team this year. Uh, and it, it sure feels like that right now. So. I definitely want to dive deeper into that, John, because that's a unique yeah. situation for people who, especially, like you said, a hyper-growth startup. Like, how are you thinking about that? Is it recruiting? Is it in-house? Is it, you know... Yeah. How do you even start when you know that you're going to grow so fast, John? Um, this is something I didn't know two years ago um, because I'd hired a lot of people, but it was all, um, you know, it was it was five, 10 people a year um, across a couple of companies. And you can do that in-house. Um, but if you want to grow faster than that, recruiting is as a function is so important. So we hired our first in-house recruiter at the beginning of 2020, and she was great. And she really made an impact. Um, we grew that team. We brought in a um, head of recruiting this year in January, and um, the 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 whole function is going really, really well. So uh, I think investing, um, if you if you if you want to grow more than just a few people here and there, 
it's really important. We, we've used uh, outside recruiters. Um, they can be fine, um, but they're really hit or miss. Like there's, a, there's some that are really good and there's a lot that aren't. Um, so in general, we will use outside recruiters for really specialized functions. Like if we just don't have the capacity to hire, uh, I don't know, like let's just say we don't know how to hire accountants ourselves. Like maybe we can find a specialist for that. Um, but um, in general, at this point, I think I'm a believer in in-house recruiting, except for execs. We, we've, we've used outside recruiters for every exec we've hired over the last two years. And that's been, um, I think that's the right move as well. What, what was your process for then choosing the recruiters? You said it can be hit or miss, which, yeah, it's very, very much true. But how well, have you gone about there? How do you evaluate who you even want to have in terms of recruiter? Um, for the, for the in, inside or, or outside? I would love to hear both because I'm actually fascinated by the, the whole hiring process, especially with high growth startups, because that's the hardest thing <laughs> a lot of times. Yep. Um, so for outside recruiters, you know, I think our, our approach is um, get credible referrals and recommendations. Um, so I would rely on our investors, um, probably your investors first, and then peers, friends in the industry, other, other networks to find those. Um, and even still they're hit or miss, um, in all honesty. Um, uh, there's a couple, there's a couple I love, like that have been really good for us. And like, I will, I will recommend those every time someone asks me, like you need a good officer recruiter, I'll say, uh, call, call, uh, call, call Phil Levine. He's, he's the guy we use. Um, but, um, for, for building the talent team itself, um, you know, I think I think in a lot of ways, it's really just treating treating recruiting like any other function, where you look for people who, you look for a leader who's done it before. Um, I think in in a leader, it's really important to have prior experience. You want somebody who can really rely on their past experience to succeed. Um, it, yeah. it, it it's hard enough to be a it's hard enough to be a exact if you're like learning it from the first time. It's that's really really hard. Well, just just yeah. one more thing on that with the, with the earlier stage. I know you mentioned kind of slow and steady gain to that first thirty five people, and you've hired people before. You've done that. Like, yep. what goes into that hiring process, or what are some things that are helpful? I, again, I'm just thinking of other founders out there. You know, starting a company and maybe if it's taking off. Like, how they go through that, and yeah. what should they be thinking about in the hiring process? I'd love to hear more. Sure. Um, so here here's our process. First write uh, what we call a mock, um, MOC. This, this, is, this is language a lot of people in the, in the recruiting world use these days, where every job you have a mission, outcomes, and competencies. So before you hire for a job, um, write down what the mission of the job is. It should be like one sentence. It should be clear. It should be really understandable. Um, then write the outcomes. Like what is this person going to accomplish? Um, and it's important that it's outcomes. Like if you just write down the tasks they're going to do, it's like, you are going to write software. Like, okay, fine. Like, what is, oh. what is um, but if you keep it outcome focused, like this person is going to improve the user experience of this part of our application. This person is going to, you know, increase the, the scaling of the, of the system or whatever. Um, it's much easier to hire people if it's not the tasks they're doing, but it's the outcomes that they're going to create. Um, then the competencies. That's like, the, the experience that's required, like you must have at least three years experience and it's um, things like that. So from there, um, second step is sourcing candidates, um, which is where recruiters can come in, networks can come in. Uh, re referrals are great. Like there's a good side and a bad side to it. Um, but a lot of our first 20 hires came from either people we already knew or people who were one degree removed from us. Um, the downside there is you tend not to hire, you tend not to hire for diversity when you do that. Uh, and I mean that in like both senses of the word, like most yeah. people, 
most people's networks look like them uh, in some way, um, which uh, both in terms of like diversity, in terms of like DEI, but also in terms of similarity of experience. Um, and so referrals are great. It's also really good to go beyond referrals as well. So yeah, and then um, the interview process um, really comes from that um, that scorecard that you've written up, the mock, uh, where you can take those outcomes and you can say, okay, this person needs to scale up our platform by 10x. How do we test to see if they can do that? We need to know, have they ever done it before? What kind of scale have they worked at? We need to know how do they, how accomplished are they at these like particular technical systems that we need to, to do. And so we, we will spend... Um, we usually do two screens. We'll do like a first screen, which is a little more like, what do you want to do? What are you good at? And a second screen, which is a little more deep dive. So it might be a programming screen for an engineer, or it might be, you know, maybe maybe it's a talk through a marketing strategy for a marketer. Um, and then we'll do like a full day, um, which is usually like five interviews. Um, that is like a deeper level. And then that's most of our process. Uh, last, la last thing to say is um, we put a lot into closing candidates. Um, once you've gotten someone to, once you've gotten someone to the last stage of an interview, you've put a lot of time in. Like you've probably yeah. put in you know, maybe 10, 20 hours with this person, but maybe you've also interviewed 20 other people just to get to this one person that you want to hire. And so yeah. we will do things like, um, like we'll send like a personal note from everyone who interviewed the candidate, telling them why we're excited about them. Um, we, we've just started doing something where we will pitch them on Mux. We will say, here's mm -hmm. why you can talk about us, us um, and really take the time to do that. So that, that's our process. No, I appreciate you sharing that because I think, I think that's really helpful for people as you're kind of starting to think through this. And there is so much that goes into hiring great people. And as you mentioned, the DEI thing as well, it's like even just to get different opinions and viewpoints and everything, it's hard when you're just in your, your circle, your network to get beyond that obviously is helpful for your company for growth and long-term. And the other side of the the growth, obviously with the people, that's a huge part of it, but even looking at the growth, funding. <laughs> you recently raised 105 million and that was not too long after raising before then. Obviously, I'm assuming obviously because of the growth and craziness of the pandemic, but you said you didn't need that capital at the time. Uh, How did you decide to then go for it? Yeah, yeah. We raised <laughs> we raised 37 million last year, which yep. um, which I thought was a lot of money. <laughs> and, and it is a <laughs> Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but but we really when we raised the last year's round the 37 million we really we put together a plan that said hey we can grow this company to be really big on this on this funding and um not really need to raise money again and that's the plan we were operating towards um so when investors first started coming to us this year which you know really started i guess it started maybe november of last year and then january of this year really picked up we, we told people, hey, we're not really interested. Um, and it was partly because um, it wasn't on our minds. We were not thinking about fundraising. Um, it's partly because we didn't want um, to... I've, I've never aspired to raise a ton of money. Like, I, I, I much... I'm, I, I like businesses that raise money. Raising money is fine. Like, like a, a lot of kinds of companies out there need some capital. But I, I like the yeah. ones that actually build something great and, like, sustainable on a, on a modest amount of, of, of funding. Um, so that's kind of what we came into everything with, into this with, um, but as we, as we thought more about it, um, we kind of looked at the scope of what we wanted to do and we had, we'd been really lean, um, leading up to, um, where we are today. We really should have had probably five X the team, maybe 10 X the team on our products in order to really, um, click as a company and do what we 
what we thought we needed to do to get to our vision. Um, and we were able to get there like in a more of a slow, steady way with our last round. Um, but it just got, it got really intriguing. Like what would we do if we had more funding? Um, it's also, it's also an aggressive funding climate as, as you, I'm sure, you know, and, uh, <laughs> we, we were yes. able to, to raise in a way that wasn't excessively dilutive. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, I probably said this last year, but I think I really mean it this year. Like we, we said, let's, let's go raise the last round we're going to need to raise. Um, and that's what we did. It's funny. You're, I'm going to see you next year, John. You're like, oh, they raised like 300 million or something. It's like, well, it was an interesting environment. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is interesting to see that to your point of the environment we're in now. It's like take advantage of it. if you're in that position, at least, because if you see companies, obviously we've got Clubhouse, you know, Andreessen doubling down on them. Um, yeah. That's a whole nother animal, but other people are similar things. And with like, tiger doubling tripling down yeah. on people it's just kind of wild and to your point video is massive and so obviously it's something that uh you're positioned really well in but i'd love to hear more of that because obviously you the last number of years have been working in video where are we at now just in terms of video what's the growth how big does this get where does mux get yeah so i th i think um five or ten years ago a lot of, when people thought video what they thought was sitting on their couch watching television um, and that's what a lot of people did. And that's actually a really giant industry. Like te television's like a $250 billion industry in the U S. Um, and, um, that's big, but I think, I think the, what video actually is, is just a really high bandwidth way of communicating information. Um, you can do a lot more with 10 seconds of video than with 10 seconds of like reading text or looking at an image or other things like that. And so we think video is just has, has applications all over. We think every, every software vertical has a clear video angle. We think most software companies will have video be a part of their product over time. Um, and so we're excited about the growth, um, not just like TV moving online, which is actually a really big, driver of growth. Um, but all of the other creative things people will do with video. Think of like, think of like Twitch 10 years ago and Peloton mm -hmm. five years ago. Those are, those yeah. are entire industries that just sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and we think those were like just two small examples of many, many more things that will happen. Yeah, there's so much that's happening in video. I mean, I, I see it all the time now. I would say the social platforms, but like you said, with the new categories being created, it's like, what is the next new category that would be yeah. created that still needs video? And yeah. then you're like the infrastructure for that moving forward. And and from that too, so the industry is going to be growing continually. And uh, obviously you're growing insanely fast. What's kind of next for you, for Mux? Like what's next for the company? Yeah, um, lots of investment in product is, uh, is the first thing, um, we, I, I wrote up like a, um, I think in our funding announcement, I wrote a blog post is like, why, why we did this. One of the things I said there is I think we've built about 10% of the software we want to build. Um, and that's just what we know about today. I'm sure if you ask me in five years, it'd be like, oh, there's a lot more to build. Um, but, um, it's a lot of investment in product is sort of the, the first thing. And that's both of our products are, they're great products. Um, Customers love them. We have very, very high, like, like most of our customers are promoters of our products, um, which is really exciting. And we want to keep that, but we really want to keep pushing and um, just keep solving more problems there. And then the second thing we'll do is build new products. Um, I think uh, once you get a product to product market fit, um, you kind of have two things that you need to do. One is scale that existing product and you 
maybe, maybe that's job one. Like you, you, you've taken all the work to get something to product market fit. Um, you really want to capitalize on it. Um, but job two, I think, is to like stay fresh by thinking about what's the next product. Um, and so that's something we're thinking about right now. And we'd like to bring more products to market. I know you mentioned earlier as well with some of the challenges that you saw, you know, five, six years ago that you wanted to solve with Mux and been working on those a lot from that. But what are some of the other problems that you still need to solve or that, you know, need creative solutions to, or that people are coming to you with and like, Hey, we need to do this. Like, what are you seeing in the landscape, John? Yeah. Um, so just in terms of the technology itself, like we haven't done anything on the device side. Like we don't have any client code for web web players or iOS or Android uh, playback for c- capturing a video, uploading, capturing a camera. There, there, there's a lot of hard problems there um, that we want to help make easier. Um, that's kind of the obvious one, I'd say. Um, and we'll probably lead with probably do that with open source. Um, we think open source is the right way to do client code. Um, we have a video player that we built ten years ago called VideoJS that, um, you know, I think I think uh, a lot of people use. It's it's, it's you know maybe five hundred thousand websites or something are using it today, um, but there's still a lot of room to like push and innovate there. I'd say. Um, then um, I think another way to think about this is um, what are the ways that we can help power video for not just the developers building software, but the the builders who are maybe one circle out of the um, out from the hardcore backend developers, um, a, a lot of a lot of what's happening right now in the way software is built is um, advances in like low code or no code tooling. Um, Jamstack kind of moves the center of gravity from uh, the backend to the front end, um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting ways that video can be brought to a wider circle of people um, who are doing interesting things with software. One of the things I'm thinking about right away is with what you've done the last you know decade or so with video and everything and with your companies as well, is you mentioned, obviously, stay lean with this company at the beginning um, and generally don't love having to raise a ton of capital if you don't have to. Um, from that, though, you had a decent exit, obviously, for you. And from that, what motivates you today? Like, what are you driven by today? How has that evolved from the early days when you know you're just struggling to get this thing going, and now you're like obviously much better position? What feels you today, John? Yeah, um, yeah. I'll say a couple things. I'll say one. One is our team. Um, I I, I want to create a great outcome for the hundred people who work for us today, and the thousand yeah. people we'll hire over the next few years or however long. Um, Another one is it's probably just pride. Um, ho- hopefully, pride in a healthy way, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's satisfying to do something that's good. And it's really, I really enjoy being a part of a company that's building great products. Uh, and then maybe the third thing, maybe this, I don't know, maybe this ties the last two together. But um, I get a lot of motivation out of building a great team. Um, so um, thinking about how to how to construct a good company, how to construct a good team, how to motivate people and treat them well. Um, when, when you think about it, like there's a lot of software companies, there's a lot of big software companies that don't treat their people super well. And there's a lot of dysfunction in the world of tech. Um, and it's really, it's motivating for me to try to build something different and maybe try to, Hey, if we're really successful, maybe we'll try, maybe try to model different ways of running a tech company. 
Yeah. And people have so many different options for who they join in the first place. So it's like, if you don't take care of that, they'll just leave <laughs> anyways. I mean, if you're like a software engineers and other people, like there's, there's different options they have typically. So they, they can go somewhere else. If you're not having a company, they actually want to stay at for yeah. a particular reason. And I've talked with hundreds of, of founders at this point, And like, that's a huge part of it. like people are staying for their mission or their culture and how they act day to day. And um, it's like the Ben Horvath thing of what you do is who you are. You know, yeah. it's like your actions speak louder than anything else. And so yeah. what the company is, is all about that. And one of the last things I'm curious about with, again, the last number of years uh, for other founders, I mean, it's so hard to build a company. The struggle is crazy. Like what keeps you sane? What helps you keep going? Uh, do you have a coach? Like, I'm curious about that side of things because you've done this for a while at multiple companies now. So I'm curious yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think it's really, really valuable for founders to have, to have meaning in their life apart from their companies. Um, startups are such a, such a roller coaster. Like the highs are, really high, the lows are really low. Um, in a lot of ways, if you're, if you're a startup founder um, or a CEO, like you, you, you give a lot of weight on your shoulders all the time. Um, and so I would, I would encourage founders to have, have more to their lives than just their work. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think that's, 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 I, I, I rely on a lot of things. I, you know, family, um, a lot of other things that, that that give me give me meaning outside of my work. It, it doesn't mean that you don't also spend a lot of time thinking about your work because it's it, it really is a job that is demanding. Um, but um, think 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 about more than just just uh, just your startup. I'd say. Yeah, things that things outside of work are 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 important. And I know from again these conversations I've had, which is always kind of fascinating to hear different perspectives people have on what that looks like for them. And even like, I think something that's mentioned repeatedly, it was just going on like a walk in nature uh, mm. once a once a day if possible, uh, multiple times a week if possible, having something where you're just not at a computer screen or whatever it may be, because otherwise you're just constantly doing that. And again, to your point of like, don't have your identity completely tied up in your startup. Like there's a lot more uh, beyond that. And obviously people want to have great outcomes and build massive companies. And there's, to your point, there's weight on their shoulders for investors potentially and other, other people. But um, yeah. if you don't take care of your mental, yeah, what do you have? You're kind of left with nothing at the end, um, yeah. which is why I love having these conversations to share those perspectives from people um, as well. And uh, I know we've talked about a lot of other things around what the company's doing, where you're going, uh, how you've built it at this point, any other just advice or things you want to tell founders, aspiring founders, early stage founders, because primarily a lot of it, people who listen are early stage founders. Yep. From your experience, anything else you'd want to share before we kind of wrap things up here, John? Um, no pressure. Yeah. yeah <laughs> say, uh, I, mean, I think, I think we've talked about a lot of, a lot of things that, um, that are important to me. I'd say, I'd say if you're an early stage founder and you're, thinking about doing something or are doing something. Um, I mean, really, really look for that, look for that customer passion um, that we talked about earlier. Um, I think the hard, the hardest problem about, about, about starting anything is actually finding a real problem and a real solution to the problem. Um, so it's not, can you build something like, yes, you can go build something. Like a lot of people can do that. Um, it's, can you really, really find a need that's big that you can solve. Um, so yeah, you know, early stage, I'd say do that. I'd say a little bit later, like really invest in scaling yourself. Um, uh, once you get to product market fit and beyond, um, 
if you if you don't scale yourself, then the organization can't like you can't build a giant company unless you're capable of actually being a founder who grows a giant company. When you say scale yourself, what exactly do you mean? Just curious. Yeah, um, have a have a deep growth mindset. Um, always be always be maybe be a little bit self critical and recognize where you're not doing things well, where you're not doing something well, or the company's not doing something well, and and attack it. So. Um, I remember I did this like two or three years ago. I made a list of like, oh man, I was just feeling the weight of like, there's so many things we have to do. It was like, we got we to gotta solve this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. And I wrote a list of like 20 problems. Um, and just doing that was really helpful because it like let me take a step back and say, okay, we have all this stuff to solve. Now let's go do it. And so, you know, I, I learned new things. I scaled myself as a manager, as an organizational leader. Um, I helped give our company focus to scale and all of these other areas that we needed to grow. Um, but, but if I was like, no, I got this, I know how to do everything, then I never would have done that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like when you're starting a company too, especially I'm talking to later stage companies and where they're at, it's like, you almost have, you have so many different stages along the way of things you need to do and your role changes. Like early on, you may be doing a lot of the coding yourself or doing all the, uh, yeah. like actually building stuff yourself. But then later on, you'd be like, wait, I'm, I'm doing like 5% of the thing I, I thought I would be doing later. And you're just like hiring people constantly and thinking about culture. Yep. It always seems to shift that way as you get to that stage. Yep, yep, definitely. And where can people go to learn more about Mux as well and connect with you, John, if they'd like to? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so our website is mux.com. Um, you can... Uh, Find out a lot there. We have a blog. Um, I, 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 I write I write on a blog about uh, how I think about startups and what we're doing. Uh, we have a lot of amazing technical content on the blog too. Um, and if you want to learn more about video, we run a conference called Demuxed, um, D-E-M-U-X-E-D. It's every October. Um, and it's really, I, 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 know, I know I'm biased, but it's really like the best conference <laughs> in the world for video technology. Um, so it's, you know, maybe 800 to 1,000 people this year. Um, people from Netflix and YouTube and all the big one, big companies and also a lot of the startups thinking about video. Um, so that's another way if you want to connect with the video industry. Well, what is that? Uh, where is that going to be located or is it virtual? It's uh, It will be San Francisco this year. It, it was virtual last hey. year, <laughs> but we were going to do it in person in October. So exciting. We'll also have a live stream. So if you can't make it, then you can always watch it as well. That's awesome. Well, well John, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.